Welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm your host, Jason Dressel, Managing Director at History Factory. And this is a historic milestone, the first inaugural episode of our new podcast that will feature content at the nexus of business and history. We'll feature fun tidbits and insights, the little gems that we like to call golden nuggets. Like, for example, did you know that this summer, a company brought back one of the most unpopular products which was largely considered to be one of the worst product launches in marketing history. We'll let you know a little later in the show who this mystery company is and why they're bringing back a product that so spectacularly failed the first time. And having just celebrated Labor Day, we're also going to unpack its history. We're going to speak with historian Joe McCartan from Georgetown University about how Labor Day came about and some of the parallels between the state of American labor today versus when Labor Day began. So with the dog days of summer nearly behind us, September is generally a big month for business. In fact, this month is the 40th anniversary of Chrysler asking for the $1.5 billion bailout. Remember that? Crazy how $1.5 billion doesn't really sound like that much money anymore. Uh, but back in the 70s, Chrysler was sucking wind uh, the oil crisis, it had a huge, uh, huge toll on, on the business. People were starting to buy more foreign-made cars, and Chrysler had to go to Congress begging for the bailout. And it came through. Ultimately, the company had to come up with like $2 billion in concessions from unions and white-collar employees and banks and all of its other stakeholders. But ultimately, Congress came through for Chrysler, and they got their bailout. And of course, the, the bailout was controversial, much like the bailout that the, uh, the automakers would get 30 years later as part of the Great Recession. A lot of folks thought that Chrysler's demise ultimately would have been better for Detroit because it would have spurred more competition and more room for innovation. But alas, Chrysler was saved and they actually paid the loan back seven years ahead of schedule uh, as part of their great recovery. Anybody remember why they had such a great recovery? Minivans, that's right, enter the minivan, Chrysler's major contribution to late 20th century automobile innovation and design, loathed by everyone universally until you have kids. Let's face it, there are two kinds of people who drive minivans, those that either are very, very secure in their sense of style or those who just don't care. But really, there's no other category. As I like to say, my family's minivan is the coolest car we've ever had. It's just a really unfortunate shape. But anyway, the Chrysler minivan, all those fake wood paneled sliding door vehicles propelled Chrysler out of bankruptcy well into the 1980s. And 40 years ago, the company that gave us the minivan hit one of its lowest moments in its history when it had to ask Uncle Sam for a billion bucks. On a more positive note, 40 years ago this month, we also got the debut of ESPN. That's right, ESPN launched on cable 40 years ago. What did they used to do in a bar on a weekday, like 11 a.m. or 2 p.m. when there was no, when there's nothing else on? Were there a bunch of dudes just lined up at the bar smoking cigarettes and watching soap operas or reruns of Andy Griffith? Anyway, ESPN last year presented 23,000 live events and 64,000 total live hours of studio and event programming. It's now on TV and digital platforms in over 200 countries and five different languages. Of course, now ESPN is 80% owned by ABC and is an indirect subsidiary of Walt Disney. 
Uh, Hearst Corporation owns the remaining 20%, and it's obviously changed the world, and as my buddy Paul says, has created football widows all over the world. Um, but the concept for ESPN was actually originally inspired by a traffic jam, uh, which if you really think about it, kind of makes sense. Um, it was uh, allegedly a discussion between Bill Rasmussen, who was one of ESPN's founders, and his son Scott, and they became irritated while sitting in a Connecticut traffic jam, and that is where we have the origin story of ESPN. Speaking of which, if you're not familiar with it, I would strongly suggest checking out uh, the ESPN book that came out a few years ago. It's called Those Guys Have All the Fun. Uh, it's an amazingly entertaining book told through transcripts from oral history interviews with pretty much everyone you can name from the ESPN universe. Um, and for what it's worth, the authors of that, uh, Tom Shales and another guy who I can't think of his name right now, also did a similar book before the ESPN book on Saturday Night Live called Live from New York, which included interviews with all of the cast members of many of the producers uh, from Saturday Night Live. So both books are really cool if you're interested in uh, learning about uh, the, uh, the creation of two, two uh, institutions. While we're talking about books, I recently just read a book called Red Notice, uh, the book by financier Bill Browder. It's a few years old now, but I just got around to reading it and it was awesome. So anyone out there who likes the idea of a murder suspense thriller combined with a business story or is interested in learning more about what it's like to conduct business in Russia, check it out, Red Notice. And on a lighter note, I recently enjoyed the documentary film Bathtubs Over Broadway, if you're not familiar with it, it focuses on the world of industrial musicals, which are plays produced by corporations. Think regional sales meetings. It's kind of like a Christopher Guest mockumentary, but real. Highly entertaining, totally recommend it. And also, while we're talking about uh, pop culture content, I've been really getting into Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. It's a show that focuses on a historical event or phenomenon and then delves into it and then imagines what if that event or phenomenon had played out differently or had not occurred. Um, but in typical Gladwell style, it's more interesting and not as trite as I might have just suggested. So uh, we're gonna have Joe McCartan from Georgetown University join us to talk a little bit more about the history of Labor Day. Joe McCartan from Georgetown University. Good to talk to you, Joe. Good to talk with you. And uh, with uh, Labor Day uh, just occurring, we thought it would be interesting to, to speak with you to get a little bit more of the history behind Labor Day. Uh, I think, uh, like most holidays, and maybe Labor Day in, 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 in particular, uh, it, it's now seemingly in the popular lexicon really associated with the end of summer and back-to-school sales and, uh, and, and the last kind of holiday of, of, of the summer. Um, but of course, the origins of, of, of Labor Day are, are, are much more substantive to, to that. So first, if you could give us a little bit of the historical perspective of, uh, of where Labor Day came from in the United States. 
Sure, Jason, happy to. Well, I would say that one thing uh, we should remember about Labor Day is it was the first national holiday in the U.S. that was created by popular demand, by demand huh. from, from the people. Um, and it emerged out of um, the organized labor movement um, in the U.S. In the, in the wake of the Civil War. Um, the big issue for working people um, in the post-Civil War years was the eight-hour workday, and that became the focus of a lot of labor organizing by the 1880s. And it was really that organizing that gave rise to the to the demand for the holiday. Interesting. Where, where, where what was the concept of the eight-hour workday? Where, who, who, where, where was the rationale of where that was driven from? Well, part of it was shaped by the way people um, felt um, coming out of the Civil War about work um, and about the proper relationship between the citizen uh, and the worker um, and the worker as citizen. Um, and, of course, the Civil War really dramatized the struggle between free labor and slave labor. And in the aftermath of the war, with slavery destroyed, uh, organized workers really used the the dialogues um, and the, the moral discussions that had been sharpened by the conflict over slavery to argue that uh, in a free democracy, citizens really needed some time to be citizens. And so in the post-Civil War years, the idea arose um, that was captured in a and a song that became popular by the 1880s called Eight Hours for What We Will. Uh, and, and the lyrics of the song said, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. And what huh. the what we will part of the song referred to is, you know, what we want to be able to do as free citizens. Part of that involves leisure, of course, but a big part of how workers thought at that time was that, that to be educated citizens, they needed time to read the newspapers. They needed to educate themselves on the political issues of the day. They needed to be involved in politics. And, of course, they needed time with their families. And so um, eight hours for what we will was a demand that, you know, in a productive, free economy, workers needed some, some autonomy to themselves if, if they were going to be truly free and equal citizens. So this was the 18th century equivalent of what we now talk about as work-life balance. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, you might say that that song was the first real expression of that concept of work-life balance. And, and it had a real political edge to it at that time because um, at the very moment when the eight-hour workday was emerging as a demand, that's also the time in which industrialization was beginning to transform the economy. We had the emergence of the first big corporations, railroads, and soon steel mills and uh, the like. We had the emergence of companies like Carnegie Steel, later U.S. Steel, um, Standard Oil, um, and you know, what workers at the time were concerned about was the impact of concentrated wealth and power on the democracy 
And they felt like if we don't have enough time to be active citizens, then, then our government will be taken over by these new and emerging interests. So specifically, the, the, the evolution of, of, of Labor Day against that backdrop, when, when, when did a Labor Day officially become a holiday? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, it first began in New York City in 1882, the Central Labor Union, which was a, the local coalition of unions in the city, decided to hold a march um, on September 5th of 1882, again, to demand the eight-hour workday and some of the other reforms that they were interested in at that time. The, the word of the New York march spread around the country, and the following year, New York did it, but so did, did it again, that is, on the first Monday of September, but it also happened in some other cities. Uh, and then by the mid-1880s, you had some states um, beginning to pass laws to recognize uh, the observance of, of the holiday. Um, so that happened by uh, 1885 and 1886, where you began to have the first states recognize it. New York was among the first, then New Jersey, Massachusetts, Oregon, Colorado. So it started at the local level, and, and New York spread more broadly and then was embraced by some states in the 1880s. It didn't become a national holiday, though, uh, until 1894. And the huh. context in which that happened is, is pretty important. Uh, there was a Democratic president uh, in the White House that year, Grover Cleveland, but he was known to be a corporate Democrat, and um, his attorney general, Richard Olney, had been an attorney general, or had been an attorney for some of the nation's leading railroads before he went to work in Washington. What happened in the summer of 1894 is one of the largest and most notorious strikes in American history, when the American Railway Union, led by a a fellow named Eugene Debs staged a nationwide boycott and strike of the railroads for their failure of the Pullman uh, Railroad uh, car manufacturing company to negotiate with its workers. It became a national conflict that froze rail traffic around the country. Cleveland called out the U.S. Army to break the strike, um, persuaded in part to do that by his attorney general. Um, they did break the strike. Debs, by the way, was thrown in prison um, and in jail. He, he converted to socialism. He came out and founded the U.S. Socialist Party, ran for president for four times after that. But, you know, so the summer of 94 was a, a summer of turmoil and conflict in the country of labor conflict, and especially labor conflict that in the minds of many working people, did not reflect well on Cleveland and his administration. They viewed his breaking of the strike as something of a betrayal. So it was in that context that Cleveland uh, decided that he would appease some of his critics, uh, and the Congress passed a bill making Labor Day a national holiday that summer. Uh, and in the, it was in September of 1894 that it was first recognized as a as a federal holiday. So this holiday really came out of not only popular demand, but struggle. Yeah. And were there, uh, what was there federal legislation that accompanied uh, the holiday or was the holiday really yeah. the, 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 the bone no. that was thrown? 
Well, it was a, it was a federal law, and that was signed by by the president. So um, yeah, the Congress. I think you know, the Pullman strike shook the country because it it really showed the power that organized workers could have. Um, the strike really froze rail traffic in the central part of the country, especially. Um, but it, it it also showed the potential explosive and you know corrosive impacts of of the labor conflict if if um, workers' demands were um, simply ignored. And so I think there was a was a mood to try to you know calm the the um, conflict that that flared up that summer. Well, Joe, this was really interesting, and again, thank you for your time uh, to share your insights. I, I hope you'll uh, you'll join us again for one of these conversations. But uh, uh, really appreciate your time and insights today, and, and fascinating to uh, to understand more about uh, what we're really celebrating uh, every first Monday of September. So, thank you. Thank you, Jason. So let's get the big chief out here and talk some business news. Uh, we call him the big chief, by the way, not because he's big, uh, nor because he's our CEO, even though he is. Uh, we actually uh, I call him the big chief because he is the leader of our homegrown Indian tribe that gathers every year at the Louisiana Jazz and Heritage Festival. And if you're a nullophile like me, then you know what I'm talking about. So without further ado, Bruce Weindrick, founder and CEO of History Factory here to talk about some of the biggest storylines in business over the last couple of months. That's got to be Popeye's chicken. For those that didn't hear, Popeye's launched a new chicken sandwich last month that has gripped America. The media buzz that it's created has been has given them over $20 million in free press, and almost instantly, this new chicken sandwich is being compared to Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich, which of course many consider to be the gold standard of chicken sandwiches. What is your take on this big news of the Popeye's chicken sandwich? Well, Jason, you know it's interesting. Uh, even, even of course, where it was launched uh, at the Sweet Dixie Kitchen, uh, that had already been busted uh, for selling their chicken during a brunch. Sure. Uh, that, that, that made, yeah, that, that already made it newsworthy. But what's really interesting, there's two things that's going on here. If you're going to uh, appropriate a dish from another uh, uh, organization, from Chick-fil-A, think about its history, but also you've got to think about where else it came from. So let's start with the definition of why it's being compared. Apparently, uh, the Popeyes has sour pickles and a, and a filet uh, on a bun. Now, they've added a brioche bun and some mayo. That was not the original uh, Chick-fil-A sandwich. Chick-fil-A claims, and again, they lay claim to the invention of the modern, the modern uh, fr fried chicken sandwich. Now, now, 
the, the term modern there is 1964 when they first introduced it. But talk about cultural appropriation. Ebony had an article where they had done some research in old African-American newspaper archives, and they found in Topeka, Kansas, uh, in the Topeka, Kansas Whip, an African-American newspaper, that in 1936, the Booker T. Cafe was already serving a fried chicken sandwich in that town. So the point being is, while they're all arguing whose is the best, uh, there is the argument whose was the first. And, and, and in some cases, does product appropriation equal cultural appropriation? Let's look at another example of that. In 1945, in the Hadley Park neighborhood of Nashville, a man named Thornton Prince at his Prince's Barbecue Chicken Shack introduced the first ever hot chicken sandwich. Now, again, you know what happened there. In sure. 2016, chicken. K- hot Nashville chicken. 2016, KFC rolled it out, and today it's served at more than 4,000 U.S. locations. Now, what's interesting about that is, again, obviously uh, product appropriation and cultural appropriation works. They both made a lot of money off this, and uh, we'll just see where it ends up. Interesting. Well, and you know, you know where I fall on this. The news that the new Popeye's chicken sandwich has mayonnaise on it is is kind of a no starter for me. But uh, anyway, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, uh, while while Popeye's and Chick Fil A are battling over chicken sandwich supremacy, uh, we've learned in the last couple of weeks that Disney and Sony are back at it again and are battling over Spider Man. What's your take on this battle, and what is Spider-Man's fate in the Marvel Universe? Well, you know, this is just such an interesting question because there have been more battles uh, over uh, these characters. Let's, let's go back over 20 years. Uh, Ronald Perlman, uh, the, the takeover artist, uh, buys Marvel Entertainment in 1989. And here's what's interesting. His quote was, it is a mini Disney in terms of intellectual property. Disney's got more highly recognized characters and softer characters, whereas our characters are termed action heroes. So, again, uh, even the comparison in those days to the value of licensing these characters. So from 89 up until about 96, he's running a pretty good operation. But what happens? In 95, the comic book bubble burst. Uh, so that already hit him. And he had acquired along the way, Marvel had acquired uh, the Fleer baseball cards. And, of course, that yeah. bubble had burst. So by, by 97, they're in bankruptcy. Here comes another raider. This is just like, uh, you know, just like a Marvel comic uh, storyline. Icon, Carl Icon comes on, goes into bankruptcy court, takes over Marvel, throws out Perlman, and, ha- and runs the board. What had happened, though, along the way was uh, they had bought a, a little company called Toy Biz that licensed these characters. Toy Biz comes around Icon, ends up taking over the company, and sells it then, uh, many years later, a decade later, to Disney. So then you ask yourself, how did Sony get Spider-Man? Well, before Perlman had bought the company in 89, way back in 1985 when Marvel was not doing so well, they sold the rights to Spider-Man to a small film company called Canon Films. Canon Film then goes bankrupt. There's a lot of fighting over who owns Spider-Man, and in 1999, when, when, when uh, Toy Biz takes uh, Marvel out of bankruptcy, they try to sell off the characters. They, they wanted to sell them all to Sony, and Sony said, we don't want them. We just want Spider-Man. So here we come back another decade later, two decades later, and Sony owns Spider-Man. Disney, 
the company that that uh, Perlman had had compared uh, Marvel to has Marvel, and now we've got this argument going on. It doesn't look like there's going to be a solution this time. But again, I think what's really interesting about both of these stories is as you look at companies like Facebook that can be broken up. Uh, if you look at the regulatory reasons for all of this stuff happening, there you know it's not over till it's over. Interesting. And of course, uh, against this backdrop of uh, of all these uh, companies and, and all the different deals that have taken pl- place over the last couple of decades, uh, you've got in the last couple of weeks uh, some companies that are getting back together and are and are and are remerging uh, decades after they were together previously. Uh, first, with uh, the news last week of Philip Morris and Altria. Yep, and, and, and you know, this is, again, this, this is the cautionary tale for breakups. Uh, you, you just never know when they're going to come back together again. Th- th- this goes way, way back then to 2008. And what was happening? Well, you know, they had had all this litigation. They had finally settled the tobacco companies, all litigation. And Altria saw an opportunity for Philip Morris to, to let them grow Take the international operations. There's a lot more growth in international. Let's, let's, let's spin them off. We'll be able to cut costs. We'll be able to raise our profit margins. And by splitting up, Philip Morris will grow, and, and, and we'll be able to cut our costs. Fast forward another decade, and both companies have found that basically the market for cigarettes globally has shrunk. Number one. Number two, they, they, so by combining, they, they, they can combine their market share. Most importantly, they both need to find ways to diversify. If you look at what Altria has been doing uh, in the past year, first they buy Juul, the e-cigarette company, and then they buy a cannabis company, uh, Kronos. So really what's yeah. happened here is the, 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 the world changed. Um, economically, the world changed in terms of our marketing product habits, and they've had to get themselves back together again. Yeah. And what about CBS and Viacom? Well, this is even more interesting when you really look at this. This goes back all the way to 1952. Uh, CBS had 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 a syndication company, okay? And they had to spin it off in 1971. That syndication company became Viacom. So they spun them off in 71, so there was CBS and Viacom was all on its own. But Viacom grew, and over time it bought Paramount, it bought Blockbuster, and ironically in 1999 it bought CBS. So now it had merged back in. So then in 2005 they split again. And what was the reason for the split? Well, the reason was one was going to be we were going to unlock value, same way like the Philip Morris Ultra. We're going to unlock the value. Uh, Broadcast, it's sluggish. Viacom, it's going to go out there in that cable-heavy cable, cable heavy business. It's going to make a lot of money. And ironically, the roles got reversed. CBS rode, did very well in the broadcast arena. Viacom did very poorly in the, in the uh, cable arena, which, of course, has gone through a lot of change with the, in the 80s through 2000 with the growth of the Internet. So ironically, the reasons why they split Eventually, they came back. So this is not. This will be now for Viacom. This will be the uh, third, second time they've come back together, and we'll see how long this one lasts. 
Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned syndication, and of course, in talking about the uh, the Marvel Empire a few minutes ago, you've got these uh, incredible uh, assets, these, these characters that are that are vintage, uh, and so uh, I'll, I'll use that to segue from uh, syndication and entertainment and uh, repurposing characters in the Marvel universe to uh, the news that we've heard in the last couple of weeks about J.C. Penney and Macy's beginning to sell. Uh, vintage clothing. What do you make of that, and why would retailers want to sell used goods in the econ- in the kind of economy that we have right now? Well, you know, I think we have to comp- we have to go back to really the last couple uh, the last story, which was this notion of changing channels and 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 you know, with Amazon out there. Uh, these retailers uh, like Penny's and Macy's are looking for any any edge. And if you look for an edge right now, that that what's called vintage clothing market has proven to be uh, extremely uh, you know extremely viable. Uh, Thread up, uh, they, they're the big they're the big dog. Sixty five million garments they've sold, but it's basically technology and logistics, the same thing that that made Amazon. There's the real real to remake. Uh, World Trade Easy Buffalo Exchange. These are all organizations that have thrived. But let's look back even further at the economic uh, incentives for why use clothing. This goes all the way back to the Renaissance, when you could go uh, in uh, Florence, Italy, um, to to the to the Mercato Vecchio, and they were selling used clothing because it was too expensive to have ready-made clothing. So you had to be a five-year apprenticeship to own a used clothing shop. During the Second World War, again, you have it again. Uh, A lot of clothing that had been abandoned by soldiers, a lot of items that creates a market for used clothing. Here in the United States, population movements because of things like economic downturns and climate disruptions like the Dust Bowl. Secondhand clothing became very important here in the United States. But then when when mechanization lowers the price of clothing, then, then fast fashion starts to happen. The price is cheap. You can quickly exchange or get rid of your clothing. So fashion trends become important. This whole vintage trend really ties into kind of in the 20th century, the secondhand stores in these alternative neighborhoods and cities where people are starting to look for you know, good quality, long-lasting, great brands at a good price. And then, of course, it, the online movement, it moves online. That becomes that, that neighborhood, and now you have it. I think that, 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 that Macy's and, and, and Penny see this as a way to kind of stay in that online arena, uh, to compete with that online arena, but in an experiential face-to-face notion inside their stores. I promise you, though, they will not be selling used versions of Coach bags if they are selling real Coach bags. The brand won't overlap in those places. Yeah, interesting point. Well, thank you, Bruce. Did any other news catch your fancy in the last couple of weeks? Well, it's more of an appreciation than anything. I, I'd actually met him once uh, when we were doing work many years ago, having just started the uh, History Factory. Met him is kind of unfair. I ran into him one time. Um, Tim Bell, the ad man, uh, Saatchi ad man turned PR consul, uh, died this past week. And, you know, he's, being, he's attributed to the guy who really made the link like it or not, between public relations, communications, and geopolitics. He, he advised dissidents, uh, leaders, autocrats, dictators, and governments. 
But most importantly, he helped convince uh, Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party to adapt labor isn't working, uh, kind of appropriate given uh, this is your Labor Day uh, uh, special. But in 1979, he created the poster showing these long lines of people waiting at the unemployment office. And it was that that was very important. He's kind of considered to be the guy who created what's now known as reputation laundering, something that grew with the growth of, of, uh, of social media. And I, you know, not surprisingly, his namesake firm lived by the sword and it died by it. In 2016, it collapsed uh, under an ethically, ethically questionable work it did in South Africa and it sunk the firm. But, you know, if anything, uh, maybe one of his quotes would be an ideal way to, to kind of leave it. His quote was, morality is a job for priests, not for PR men. Uh, rest in peace, Tim Bell. <laughs> well, we'll leave it there, Bruce, and uh, appreciate you bringing the conversation back around our unifying uh, theme of labor. And uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much. Oh. All right, man. I'm talking about the funky chicken. Earlier, I asked if you knew who the company was that brought back a product, a product that many would say was a colossal failure the first time. This product was launched in April of 1985. Indeed, Coca-Cola, they did it. They brought back new Coke. I guess now it's not that new, but they brought it back anyway. Um, you can actually uh, buy some new Coke uh, on a sort of 1985-themed web page. Um, this is a promotion that was tied in with the Stranger Things Season 3 this summer. Um, so there you have it. The uh, mystery company of the day is Coca-Cola and their resurgence with new Coke. So finally, we're going to have our Milestone Minute where we congratulate the companies and brands who have reached significant milestones. First, happy birthday and congratulations to Google. Google, earlier this month, turned 21. They are officially drinking age. So, everyone at Google, have a shot of tequila. Happy birthday. The Gap. The Gap turned 50, summer of 69. Who knew? And Amazon. Amazon has now turned 25. Happy 100 to Hilton. Hilton turned the big one zero zero this summer. And happy 150 to Kraft Heinz. They celebrated their 150th anniversary with actually a really cool campaign uh, that some of us have been sending around the office, the 150 years of clean plates ad campaign. You may want to check that out. Um, they also, in my opinion, did something terrible. They have released a new product line called Mayo Chup. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's ketchup and mayonnaise love childed together in a assortment of different flavors. As someone who hates mayonnaise, yes, I am a card-carrying member of the No Mayo Club. This is a terrible idea and I cannot support that. So 
of course, you know, when we think about labor history, we think about the, the, the history of immigration and the Industrial Revolution and how that's carried through to today. And uh, obviously, with immigration being such a, a hot uh, topic in, in today's political environment, uh, it's interesting, actually, to note that a new study that just came out by the bipartisan group, uh, let's see, what are they called, the New American Economy, uh, just published a study that 45% of U.S. Fortune 500 companies were founded by immigrants or their children. Um, so interesting. Okay, that's a wrap. That's our show. History has been made. We have launched the inaugural episode of History Factory Plugged In. On behalf of all of us at History Factory, I want to thank our generous corporate sponsors. Oh, wait, we don't have any of those. Anyway, thanks for listening. Hope you all found the show to be entertaining. Stay tuned for more episodes coming in the next couple of weeks. I'm your host, Jason Dressel. You can find me at jdressel at historyfactory.com. And you can visit History Factory at historyfactory.com. Take care.